Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 8th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. We live in rather odd times. It seems as if in terms of morality, in terms of determining how we should behave, we're increasingly looking to our business leaders and particularly our business writers. Um, a month ago, I had uh, Stephen M. R. Covey on the show, uh, has an interesting new book out, Trust and Inspire, How Truly Great Leaders Unleash Greatness in Others. It's not just for business, the idea of trust. Stephen talked to me about how his book and his thinking can help in terms of trusting foreign leaders. Um, I also last month had Susan McKenzie Brady on the show. She has a new book out, uh, Arrive and Thrive, Seven Impactful Practices for Women Navigating Leadership. Particularly, I talked to Susan about the importance of empathy, both in and out of the home. Of course, the biggest issue that we're trying to deal with, particularly in America, is the idea that we're not able to talk to one another. I had the business writer Monica Guzman on the show. Uh, I never thought of it that way. How we can actually talk to one another, how to have fearlessly curious conversations in what Monica calls dangerously divided times. Monica isn't a formal business writer, but she's still trying to help us figure out how we can talk to one another. I also had another very distinguished um, business writer, Keith Ferrazzi, on the show. He has a new book out, Competing in the New World of Work. And I talked to Keith about what politicians can learn from corporate CEOs about making the world a better place. I think this is all an interesting introduction to my guest today. Many of you will know her as the author of Mastering Civility, a manifesto for the workplace, which was a much acclaimed book. And she has a new book out, uh, Mastering Community, The Surprising Ways Coming Together Moves Us from Surviving to Thriving. She is joining us from the University of North Carolina today. Uh, Christine, welcome. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. So, Christine, this is a, a, a kind of a, a horse and cart question, I guess. But what is it about business writers like you and your friend Stephen Covey and um, Keith Ferrazzi and many others, which mean that we're increasingly relying on them for knowing how to behave? Why is it that you have become a, a founts of moral wisdom. Well, I guess we're just trying to do our part, uh, you know, to inspire and motivate leaders to care about, for example, treating people really well and how it pays. So I think we're just trying to find our path and figure out how best to change the world and what we see would be meaningful ways. Christine, you've made a career out of writing about both civility, particularly in community, uh, and your focus in terms of your career as a business writer is critiquing incivility at work. But how much is that incivility at work, in your view, a reflection of, of 
the broader incivility in society and our culture? I think it's very much related. You know, I think it both within the workplace, it you catch it kind of, even if on the receiving end, you tend to take it back home or into your community. So you take it out on others and it works vice versa. You know, if we're catching it on social media, uh, it takes us off track. It primes us to think more aggressively, to think more in more dysfunctional ways. Uh, it robs us of our attention and focus. And of course, we bring that uh, into the workplace. You know, we're not as productive. We're not as creative. We're kind of taken off track. So I think it's very related, unfortunately. It's chicken and egg in particular when it comes to social media. How, and we've done many, many shows on how social media in one form or another is creating incivility, unhappiness, loneliness, hatred. How central do you make social media in our increasingly um, uncivil world? I think it's definitely tied to it. I think that um, in particular, the number one reason that we have found that people are rude is because they feel stressed or overwhelmed. I think some of that is tied to social media. I think the other thing is we just kind of catch it. You know, we're distracted. It puts us in a negative mood because we're seeing so much negativity, so much rudeness online uh, that it colors our norms for behavior. And really just what we found in research is it primes us to to act in in more dysfunctional ways. And so I I think it's highly related and uh, suggests that people as much as possible, you know, try to um, kind of cut down their time and energy on social media if they're feeling some of these negative effects. Yeah, it seems as if incivility has become the modus operandi on, on, on particularly on networks like Twitter. The idea that it's 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 cool to be rude, or at least it's cool to be um, disrespectful. Uh, why is that? Do you think? Why has it happened? Well, I think uh, just like, for example, when we studied why are people rude, twenty five percent point to their leaders and as basically role models for this. And I think, sadly, what we found in other research is we pick up on what's the norm, and so if most people are communicating in ways that um, all of a sudden seem normalized by being, you know, rude, uncivil, disrespectful, um, certainly not caring or lifting people up. I think the idea is most people are feeling like, you know, they're being put down in some way, then uh, we tend to do more of that ourselves. It's just, you know, sadly, what we find in terms of all the different studies that we've done. In terms of those studies, how much have you looked at the crossover between incivility in the family, particularly between parents and children, and the way that affects people's confidence and perhaps performance in the workplace? Yeah, um, I personally have not studied within the family, but I can tell you generally uh, what the research suggests is that if people are feeling put down, and I have studied this, then 
um, they tend to act like a smaller version of themselves in other arenas, including the workplace. Uh, so I very much believe that if it happens in families uh, or in other communities uh, that we're a part of outside of the workplace, we take that smaller version of ourselves uh, into the workplace and any other arena. You know, if you're playing sports, you're feeling like a smaller version of yourself. You're not going to be as confident. Um, you're not going to bring your full self. I think Amy Emmonson's work on psychological safety is really tied to this. So this idea of you're going to be more fearful to speak up and contribute your fullest, which um, of course means that the workplace and these other communities and you know family type uh, situations, we're losing out on people's potential. Christian, a lot of your work suggests that the metrics for incivility don't work. There is a price. It affects us not just mentally, but in economic terms, in terms of the bottom line. You mentioned sports. Mm -hmm. It's always been understood, I guess, broadly, that many sports leaders, managers, coaches are jerks. Is that just wrong? I think so. I mean, I think that we have plenty of incredible examples of coaches that it doesn't mean that you're not hard on players. You know, I talk about it in Mastering Community Book is Practicing Radical Candor. So the idea is Kim Scott really talks about this so well in her book. Uh, you care personally, and so you're able to challenge directly. So I'm not suggesting that, you know, coaches are going around sugarcoating things for players, but I do believe that there's a, a balance. And uh, one of the business leaders, for example, that I use in this regard is Doug Conant, who turned around Campbell's uh, using the idea of tough-minded on standards, but tender-hearted with people. And I, I really believe that the best coaches out there are finding a way to do that. And particularly these days, that they need to come to people uh, caring about them and showing empathy and that that will pay uh, because players are much more likely to trust them, work harder for them, feel more comfortable uh, and tend to see really positive performance. Um, in fact, I'm here with Anson Dorrance, uh, UNC, who's won 22 national championships, kind of studying how do you grow people? Um, what's the right culture? That's a soccer and, coach, right? Yeah, the women's soccer coach. And he had really kind of started the U.S. national program when Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and others were playing. So he really has an outstanding reputation and, uh, you know, his network, including baseball coaches at Vanderbilt, like Tim Corbin and volleyball coaches at Stanford, like Kevin Hambly and others who have won, you know, multiple national championships. I think they're doing it this way. And so I hope to shed some light on that in the future. But I don't believe it's an either or. I think it's an and, you know, you can be tough on people and on standards but tenderhearted as well. And I think it starts actually, if you can plant those seeds of respect and caring, uh, people are far less defensive when they're getting really critical feedback. It's because they know you care. Uh, what about the, the, the male female thing? Um, uh, Christine, I had uh, uh, the biographer of coach K on the show recently, again, right up your street. And one of the things he talked about, Coach K, was how much advice he takes from his wife and how much respect he has from women. I'm not sure I was completely convinced by this, but I was intrigued <laughs> by it. Does that 
resonate with you? Does it ring a bell in terms of successful leaders? Absolutely. In fact, uh, Anson Dorns wants a, a chapter in there on this balanced approach. And uh, Tim Corbin, who coaches Vanderbilt baseball, um, his wife is very involved in the same ways that Coach K's wife is involved. Um, and so it's really interesting to see those dynamics and coaches speaking very highly of, of pairing kind of the maybe more male leadership style with a more female type leadership style and how, um, you know, they can be paired in very positive ways. Yeah, I'm, I, I, yeah, I grew up in England, so I follow English football. Yeah. And certainly the tradition there of the, the great managers was that they were enormously fearful, terribly intimidating. I'm not sure whether your theories would necessarily work in soccer, but maybe things are changing. Maybe the athletes themselves are more empowered and not willing to put up with bullies anymore. I think that's part of it. I mean, I certainly think that there are people that have gotten ahead using the description uh, that you just rattled off. I think, um, you know, Steve Kerr is one that comes to mind in your neck of the woods that, yeah. you know, has succeeded with four values and joy and, um, you know, mindfulness is one and compassion is another. And then competition is the fourth, I believe. And so I really do think we're seeing more leaders in sports, but generally with this idea of at least that you want to show that idea of caring um, and that matters. And I think the big connection is it it wins you trust and trust is at the crux. Yeah, of, and that's your friend, uh, Stephen Covey, Trust and I, Inspire. Yeah, I love that book. Uh, yeah, and I do think that he's on to the mode of mood, moving from command and control to trust and inspire. And I, I think that we will see better wins for leaders, for coaches, for parents even, um, around that mode, if you will, the trust and inspire. Which institutions, um, Christine, have been most open to your theories of mastering civility? Is it universities, businesses, the military? Uh, I would say businesses. Um, I, you know, I think that it runs the gamut. I mean, even government agencies have been have had major civility campaigns. NSA, our National Security Agency, was the first one that I know of in the government arena. Uh, Cisco actually was the first corporate group that I know of that came out. They shifted actually from a workplace aggression and violence program to a civility program. Yeah, uh, you. Then, uh, I was just watching a, a TED speech you made this morning, and you and you note that I think Cisco assumed that they could save at least twelve million dollars a year if they could simply make people behave in a more civil way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was very conservative and it's quite dated now. Uh, hospitals that have used similar metrics that, you know, we our research has found, <laughs> found that it's into the $100 million range. So largely a big cost is turnover. Um, that's probably the biggest. Uh, yeah. Christine, how some of the most uncivil, incivil people I know don't seem to be aware of it. If you accuse them of this, they'll look at you as if you're insane. Yeah. They'll say, well, I'm sensitive or I care or I'm passionate. How much of your challenging is convincing people 
to behave themselves, to change themselves, to, 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 to confront who they really are. It's a huge part. And I didn't anticipate that. You know, I started this research a couple of decades ago thinking there are some jerks in the workplace and we have to, you know, correct that. And where I've landed is that most of this stems from a lack of self-awareness. And Tasha Yurik's work talks about that in the sense of she has found and we collaborate together, but she's found that 95% of people believe they're self-aware. You know, we have a good sense of our strengths and weaknesses. Um, but she has found that only 10 to 15% actually are. So, you know, 80% of us are, we have blind spots daily around how we're affecting others. So I believe so much of this stems from not bad intent, um, but rather this idea of, we just don't know how we're being perceived and what things we might be doing that are really, you know, bothering people, belittling people, <laughs> throwing them off, off, so to speak. We are speaking with Christine Porras. She's one of the best-known writers on civility and community in um, business school. She's very distinguished. She's the author of Mastering Civility, a manifesto for the workplace, and a new book, um, Mastering Community. We spent the first half of the show talking about civility. I'm going to take a short break now, Christine, and afterwards I want to talk about this uh, journey from civility to community, how you made it, what you're saying in the new book, how it crosses over and how it's different. So we're going to take a, a 60 second break and then we'll be back with Christine Porath, the author of the new Mastering Community. Don't go away, anyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So, Whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenon. We're back with Christine Porath, the author of Mastering Community. She's also the author of a very distinguished, uh, highly respected book, uh, Mastering Civility. Christine, how did you get from civility to community, the two Cs? 
Yeah, well, I think they're definitely related. I mean, I think with a lack of incivility, you have a lack of community, a lack of connection. Um, but a large part of it was Tony Schwartz and I did this survey of over 20,000 people working in different industries. We were partnering with Harvard Business Review. And what we were looking at was, um, you know, why aren't people more uh, productive and satisfied uh, in work and in life? Um, and I noticed that one of these items uh, around a sense of community kind of popped, and that was that over 65% of people did not feel like they had a sense of community. And this was all pre-pandemic. So I really um, also felt this in my own life and uh, felt like isolation and loneliness was becoming a huge problem in an epidemic studied by Vivek Murthy and and others, and uh, just felt like we could and should do better. And I guess part of this was inspired by my brother, Mike, who started The Mighty, uh, which has grown into the largest healthcare community in the world, and seeing, seeing the power of people helping others and how community can really blossom. And what he didn't realize was when he started it, he thought he was helping people find information and support based on health problems. And what he has since learned is that the fundamental problem that they're solving for is really isolation. Isolation is, of course, key. I mean, that's the essence of uh, the opposite of community, uh, fragmentation, isolation, loneliness. Um, the subtitle of your book is The Surprising Ways Coming Together Moves Us From Surviving to Thriving. Isn't that obvious? Doesn't everyone know that? Isn't it given... Well, I, I think that what surprised me is that across all these different topics that I kind of hit in Mastering Community, uh, it, it's almost like community is an amplifier. It lifts us up even to greater heights. And that's true of even things as basic as exercise. You know, we get some physical benefits from exercising on our own. It's amplified by working out together, you know, going for a hike, someone, what, what have you. And so I think, you know, the idea was across these various factors, we grow uh, and, you know, are much happier and healthier when we feel connected to others. And given how many of us are missing that, and this was all pre-pandemic, but it's, of course, worse now, I think uh, I just wanted to highlight how much this is the case and the ways in which um, can take us there, can help us move from surviving to thriving. Christian, I mentioned at the beginning uh, Monica Guzman's new book, I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversation in Dangerously Divided Times. Um, it's an interesting book. In, in terms of your analysis of the crisis of community in America, how much of it is bound up in in politics and our failure to see uh, other people's opinions, other people's perspectives, other people's ways of thinking? I definitely think it contributes to it. You know, for example, in the workplace, uh, it's, it's hard to get people talking to each other when they're feeling very divided on political issues, for example. And so I think it's, it's one of several different things that are really problematic these days, but I think it contributes to a us versus them mentality where um, people don't feel as connected to others, you know, don't feel a sense of belonging because <laughs> these, these big differences or fragmentations with people that 
that in some cases we may be needing to work with quite closely. Christine, we've done also a lot of shows about the crisis of public space, of the public sphere in America. Uh, last weekend, I did a show with Donald Cohen, How the Looting of Public Goods is Destroying American Democracy. He has an interesting new book out, The Privatization of Everything. Now, politically, I'm guessing you might be on a slightly different page to Donald Cohen. But to what extent do you think healthy community is bound up with a healthy public space? Well, I think it helps for sure. Uh, so I think that if if we could see examples uh, uh, within the public sector and public space of healthy communities, particularly where we could bridge our divides or at least listen to others' opinions, that would be a start. Uh, I think, you know, Adam Grant has some good ideas for how to do this in his recent, fairly recent book, Think Again around, you know, just starting the conversation, asking questions, trying to be open-minded. I think all of that would contribute to uh, people feeling a better sense of connection and community, even if they disagree politically. And Christine, what about the issue of inequality, which is, again, one of the great problems, or many people believe is one of the great problems in America. I live in, as I mentioned at the beginning, in San Francisco, a city of enormous inequality between uh, a small group of people, extremely wealthy, particularly tech-related people, and then an increasingly large underclass of people living out on the street. Do you think that mastering community is also bound up in confronting some of that inequality? I think it's really helpful if we did that. I mean, one of the examples that I use in Mastering Community for boosting well-being, member well-being, is this idea of Marriott. And uh, they have a take care program. But one of the neat things is, you this know, this is Marriott, the hotel chain, right? Correct. Yeah. And, you know, they have over 700,000 employees worldwide. But what's kind of neat about them is that they have this take care program. It's not only about taking care of ourselves and you know, our coworkers, but of society, really. And so you'd see various programs spring up. And this is employee led, really, they have these take care ambassadors where it's voluntary. But, you know, in Thailand, they may be doing something for sea turtles or marine life. And in another area, you know, you may see um, them having kids decorate bike helmets so that their safety um, because they, there's an impoverished area near them where, you know, adults and children are riding bikes along cliffs without helmets. And so I think what was neat about that is seeing all the, we'd call it like corporate giving or corporate social responsibility. And I think that there are plenty of great examples out there. I mean, Cisco is another one that is doing more of this and even allowing their employees to choose, you know, what kind of contributions do you want to make? And um, so I think that's becoming more important in part because it's more important to people. And so if, you know, I think you mentioned earlier this idea of keeping or gaining talented folks, and I think um, people are caring more about what are we doing for others. And so organizations and communities that answer this need or at least allow and empower employees to do so I think we'll have a competitive advantage moving forward. Christine, some people since sniff an element of hypocrisy here. These companies make huge amounts of money. Sometimes they're not doing a great deal of public good, perhaps when it comes to the environment. 
And yet they have these public schemes for helping community. To, to what extent do you believe that if, if, if corporations are indeed to master community, um, it needs to cost them something? Yeah, I think, uh, I hope, I think employees can kind of sniff out some of that and uh, at least over time. And so I, I really do believe the ones that are authentic about this are going to be the ones that get ahead and are, you know, not only investing in their community internally, but it's what they're doing for their community, maybe externally as well. Um, and, and those will be kind of the bright spots uh, for people and for talent. Um, so I think organizations in particular can make a huge difference in this and, and maybe in some ways are going to lead the path um, for... Well, this leading is interesting. As I said, that. Uh... When when I talked to Keith Ferrazzi a couple of weeks ago, he talked about what politicians can learn from corporate CEOs about making the world a better place. What about what politicians can learn from CEOs about strengthening community, mastering community? Well, I think a lot, at least if we look at some of our um, political uh, arenas in the U.S., I think that actually a few years ago, Bob Sutton, who's at Stanford, and I had a conversation where we really saw organizations as bright spots. Um, and that's in part also what contributed to this book on mastering community was we felt like uh, even though both of us have talked a lot about, spent much of our careers talking about toxic workplace environments, we really were seeing a lot of positive examples um, that, like we just talked about. And so we felt like maybe that was one way to bridge the divide. So coming back to this theme about like, why are you doing this kind of work, you and others? I think we believe if we can shine a light on some places that are making a difference and seeing them generate wins around these things, meaning even financial benefits, but um, then you know, maybe that will lead more places to do that, including politicians um, and our political sphere. Christina, I had an interesting conversation last month with a, a sociologist from UC Berkeley, Caroline Chen. She has a, a new book out suggesting that in our spiritually impoverished age, more and more people are finding meaning, religion at work itself. Does that ring a bell for you? Is that something that we should be happy about or something that should be a warning about the spiritual poverty of, 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 of our society outside the workplace? What a fascinating point. Um, I mean, I, I find it really interesting. Uh, I think I, you'd enjoy the book. It's a really fascinating book, actually. Yeah, it sounds that way. I mean, I, I happen to be Catholic and I happen to practice and... Uh, but I mean, one of the ways that I frame mastering community is the fact that, you know, most of us lack community in different ways. And that includes everything from, you know, decades ago, um, the idea of bowling alone and we're lacking community, whether mm. that's at the neighborhood level or churches um, and other places. And, you know, since then, we've seen a real decline in uh, religious activity and so forth, um, again, all pre-pandemic. And, uh, you know, personally, I feel sad about that. Um, I think the glass half full is you want people to find that somewhere. So if it's the workplace, in my mind, it's better than nothing. So I think that um, just like friendships now, I mean, 
a lot of it is is tied around the workplace, you know, and Gallup years ago found that if you had one good friend at work, like that actually drove engagement more than anything else, which I would have never guessed that. Several times in this conversation, you've added the caveat pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. Has the pandemic changed any of this? Has it profoundly altered the world as we hopefully get back to normal? I think it has. I mean, uh, I was just listening to um, a couple people talk about this earlier today on mental health and all-time low and things like that. So I think, if anything, it's uh, the pandemic has amplified the need for community and the fact that, as you uh, mentioned earlier, I think organizations, workplaces can be a solution for this. Uh, and if, if we focus on it, if, if we have leaders even, it doesn't have to be, you know, totally top down, but, um, and, you know, part of part two of the book of Mastering Community is really this idea of be the change you want to see. So I don't think you absolutely have to have power to start some communities, whether that's being weekend warriors, um, you know, kind of working out together or doing something else, a cause for your various community, doing Habitat for Humanity or feeding the homeless or what have you. But I think it can start anywhere. But I I do believe that uh, we need it now more than ever. People are desperate for it and it makes a huge difference. Well, one way you can start is by reading Christine Parth's new book, Mastering Community, The Surprising Ways Coming Together Moves Us from Surviving to Thriving. It's an important new book from a very important writer. Congratulations, Christine, on the book. What else should people be reading in uh, almost now mid-April 2022 in addition to your new book? Yeah, well, you mentioned it earlier, but um, Stephen Covey's Trust and Inspire, I do think is tied to this and it is something that I see uh, you know, us moving towards more in the future. Uh, I think another one that I read recently was Dan Pink's book, The Power of Regret. Yeah, um, he was out here. I, I've known Dan for a while. I need to actually get him on the show. Yeah, he'd be fantastic. It's a great new book. And I think, you know, many of us during this pandemic have had time to reflect on our regret. And he provides some solutions for how to use it to move forward in a positive way. So I love that idea. Finally, Christine Parth, the author of Mastering Community, as well as Mastering Civility. Christine, uh, who runs the world uh, on uh, April 8th, 2022? Who's in well, charge? I'd like to say you do. I mean, for this next year, part two of Mastering Community is really about be the change you want to see. And uh, it starts with you. And so much of our research really speaks to the ripple effects and our small actions, whether that's, you know, smiling, acknowledging people, listening attentively, uh, those kind of things do matter more than we think. And uh, we pass it forward in the communities that we're in. So I think that that's a start and I hope an empowering message given, you know, where we're at these days. 